Today on Fearmonger Fridays, our almost weekly temperature taking of the emerging new Cold War, I want to look at a genre of opinion piece I've seen more of lately. These can range from the thought-provoking to the cartoonishly absurd and are brought to us by writers who range from out of their depth to simply out of their minds in this increasing effort to stir the pot into a froth of fear. That's Fearmonger Fridays for March 15th, 2019, and this is the Cold War Vault. The articles I'm speaking of, essays and opinion pieces, call for some kind of renewed awareness of the nuclear threat. Through a Cold War-style resurgence of visual media, films and television, maybe video games and comic books. These articles seem to have been coming more frequently in the last year, partly because the potentially dystopian news aggregators like Google News only show me the articles it thinks I want to read, and partly because there have just been more of them swirling around because a mushroom cloud or a headline that shouts nuclear war generates the clicks coveted by online news outlets. Whether the underlying threats are really worse or the political mechanisms are really more rotten than at any time since the end of the Cold War is just such a complex and interesting topic that it's a huge part of why I'm doing this work. And a 500-word essay reprinted on Huffington Post really isn't the venue for that kind of serious analysis. But it can be a starting point for understanding what to worry about and what to shrug off as clickbait. But what consistently fails to make much sense to me is this call for a return to the 1980s in visual media to inform and educate the public on the coming threat of global catastrophe. I want to look at a short essay that appeared in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, and it was quickly trending just about everywhere I get my news and commentaries. It's by the science fiction writer Charlie Jane Anders and is titled, Pop Culture is No Longer Full of Apocalyptic Nuclear Visions. That's too bad. The piece argues that the publicity given to the subject of the nuclear threat of the Cold War was essential in bringing that threat into the public discussion and eventually bringing an end to the Cold War itself. When it's phrased like that, it's a fine thesis. It's definitely defensible, and it's an argument I've made in my own writing. But to make that argument, examples need to be pulled from decades of Cold War cinema and curated with a fairly expert hand. After all, Mad Max The Road Warrior is about as instructive on the petroleum-based economy in a post-apocalyptic world as Avengers Infinity War is on the fate of life in the universe. Oddly, both films were referenced in the essay in question. What this piece does wrong, and in fact I'll let Charlie Jane Anders off the hook somewhat, 
I'll say that what this whole wave of new Cold War media thought does wrong is to really misunderstand the differences in the motivations between, say, atomic pop culture or nuclear cinema in the old days and the popular culture today. And that all stems from a misunderstanding of what the threat really is and what it was. And that's something that very few authors hitting their 500 words in journalism today seem to be willing to do. Using this example, what I'd like to do is, first, I'd like to talk about the current misapprehensions about the nuclear threat of our time. They show up everywhere, and so I think it's worth it. Then maybe try to explain why there are no films, really no media at all, that deal seriously with nuclear war in the last couple of decades. The essay in question begins, The risk of a devastating nuclear conflict appears higher now than at any time since the Cold War, and yet pop culture has more or less stopped warning us of the dangers of atomic devastation, and that's too bad. We need fresh stories to help us understand the renewed and complex risks we face and to nudge us out of our complacency. On the last point, I agree. We need fresh stories. On the first, I can't agree. That is, the risk of devastating nuclear conflict appears higher now than at any time since the Cold War. The type of nuclear war that faced civilization by the 1980s is simply not the risk that the world faces today. It is possible, yes, by virtue of the continued existence of the tools and mechanisms of destruction. The warheads, the missiles, the generals, the admirals, the short-tempered men. Yes, and I would even say that the risk of the use of nuclear weapons has gone up because of further proliferation, both in materials and in knowledge. But hey, this technology is 70 years old. It really is just a matter of time. In any case, there is a difference between devastating nuclear conflict in the Cold War and the use of a small number or even a single nuclear device by a rogue actor. That difference is the existence of an existential threat. And by that I mean the destruction of a nation-state or the unraveling of the fabric of society or even the permanent poisoning of the environment. The world is so far from a level of tension that would allow for the release of a multi-phase nuclear strike involving thousands or even a few hundred megatons that it just cannot be considered the kind of looming threat that we face. And certainly not the threat that a vast demographic of media consumers remember or understand, no matter how close the doomsday clock gets to midnight. Which is a brief second assertion by the author, who states correctly that the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock closer to midnight in January 2018, making it our, quote, closest call since the 1950s. 1953 to 1960, in fact. The risks are also correctly identified as multipolar now, from proliferation to bad policies. 
As I recently reminded everyone, the new nuclear policy review allows for a nuclear response to a cyber attack as asymmetrical as that might be, and no matter what country, large or small, nuclear armed or not. In the late 1970s and early 80s, there were serious war games undertaken at the Hudson Institute think tank. They had to be rigged by the referees just to start World War III between two superpowers and mega-nuclear powers that had their fingers on constant hair triggers. My point with that is, in the worst days, nuclear strategists could hardly set the thing off. But what would the result be in a world of such uncertainty without a comprehensive Cold War-era mechanism to initiate a war? Who would suffer? Who would retaliate? Who would even start it? It would be confusion and death, certainly, but it would not be the end of the world in the terms laid out in popular culture by the end of the 1980s. And here, yes, I will reluctantly include less serious visions like The Road Warrior and Thunderdome, though the author of this piece in question seems to take them seriously enough as visions of future survival. I think I've made my point that the current situation is not like the former situation. So to the author's question, why isn't there a new atomic pop culture to fill the void and depict the new nuclear threat? For one reason, I think that no one, and certainly not those predisposed to produce media to entertain, inform, and warn of such things, really knows what form that threat will take. It was easy to show global nuclear holocaust for years with the implicit or explicit understanding on the part of the audience that the players were the United States and the Soviet Union. But how do you do that in a world in which even policymakers see danger all around but are unsure about the vectors of attack? And where do you put your energies trying to create a pop culture that shows the dangers inherent in the currently wobbly global situation? The last film to deal seriously with the threat of nuclear war in a mature way, so I'm going to exclude Terminator 2 and so many more of what are probably our mutual favorites, that last film was the 1999 HBO film By Dawn's Early Light. It was the last such Cold War film and was adapted from William Prochnow's novel Trinity's Child. I mention this because there was a decade of film that came after searching frantically for new threats. The 1990s turned to creative terrorism. Here are a few examples. Passenger 57, 1992, International Psychopath. Speed, 1994, Mad Bomber, Dennis Hopper. The Rock, 1996, A Rogue General. Air Force One, 1997, Communist Radicals. The Devil's Own, 1997, The Irish. Tomorrow Never Dies, 1997, A Media Mogul. The World is Not Enough, 1999, A Greedy Heiress. 
If I could, I would have added two more. One is The Sum of All Fears, which straddles the 1990s, the book having come out before the end of the Cold War, and the film after September 11th. In that case, it was neo-Nazis. And just barely missing out on inclusion in this short list, Die Hard, 1988, international bank robber Severus Snape. And then, after a decade of terrorist villains, the threat became suddenly and violently real and moved instantly into the popular consciousness. War in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, the Middle East, Islam, and terror became conflated in the popular culture and filled our screens. I can't begin to list every film since 2001 that has had a hand in recreating the image of the global villain, but that threat was real and present, permanently, seemingly present. There is a unique viciousness about constant and total war. Whether organized groups or lone wolves, there is something even more frightening about small acts of terrorism and violence. Especially, I think, for those who have grown up in it. If you think the days of duck and cover and air raid sirens left children feeling helpless, or the later depictions of the apocalypse terrified them into trauma, I want you to think about what it's like to live now as someone young who has never known anything else and can't escape because it's everywhere, always, and yet nowhere. From March 11, 2002, to its end on January 27, 2011, the Homeland Security Advisory System, the five-color warning system, never moved below yellow, which was elevated, and that meant significant risk of terrorist attack. It was just permanent significant risk. Maybe we know what it's like to grow up like that. Or maybe it's something new. In order for the new visions called for in this essay to exist, they need to speak to the populations most at risk. As an anecdote only, though I do trust myself, as a former high school teacher before pursuing my Ph.D., where I also taught, I can tell you that over the last decade, young people perceive the world to be ever more unhinged and unsafe. But that insecurity comes from so many directions that the 30-year-old world of a nuclear war that might stop the pulse of the planet is distant and quaint compared to climate change. But never fear, because the post-apocalyptic visions called for by Charlie Anders in this essay and others warning of nuclear Armageddon lest we heed the doomsday clock, those visions are already here. So let's look around. Let's look to games. Metro 2033, set in the ruins of Moscow following a nuclear war where the survivors are forced to live in the underground. Fallout 3, highly successful, takes place in a nuclear-scarred Washington, D.C. and Arlington, Virginia. Fallout 4, 
even more successful. 210 years after the Great War, which caused catastrophic nuclear devastation across the United States, Mad Max, which I'm sure you already know that story, Wasteland 2, set in an alternate history timeline in which nuclear war between the United States and Soviet Union took place in 1998. And one of the best-selling and best-loved games of all time, The Last of Us, takes us through a ruined world on an emotional journey from coast to coast, all the while hungry and cold. These are not obscure games. These are not mobile games. These have sold tens of millions of copies and made hundreds of millions of dollars. The apocalyptic culture exists in television as well. The Walking Dead, continuously one of the most popular shows on television, is a bleak look at a world without any hint of civilization. Fear the Walking Dead, the spin-off. The 100, The Rain, Colony, The Last Ship, 12 Monkeys, 3% all deal with worlds in some state of disruption and decay. And they are recent. To go back to 2001 and list them all would take pages. I wouldn't even want to dip into film here because there are so many, except to say that 2016 brought us a new Mad Max film, and not a beat has passed since Thunderdome. So you see, all of these visions, many nuclear, but all post-apocalyptic, do exist already in a form recognizable to those who call for new visions of atomic destruction to put the fear of the bomb into popular culture. But it's there already, in higher resolution and higher definition than the 1980s could have dreamed of. But it isn't a terrifying warning. It's escapism, especially for the young, and not because they don't know any better, not because they're ignorant of what an atomic bomb is or what it does, I assure you, but because those are worlds where scary things happen, and it might be difficult to live, and life is a struggle, and you have to deal with Rick's bad decisions in The Walking Dead, but in those worlds, heroes have purpose and characters have agency, and they can do something, however small, about the terror around them, and maybe make life better for themselves, a little less scary, and a little less insecure. People don't watch these post-apocalyptic films or shows or play these games because they're scary, and they certainly don't watch them because they're informative. They watch them because they see the potential of a better version of themselves there, where they can fight the bad guys and make a better world and not be so unsure all the time. We were unsure all the time once before. We do know how it feels. So have sympathy. I'm DJ Kinney, and this has been the Cold War Vault. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at coldwarvault.com. The Vault is available on all major platforms now, so please like and subscribe on iTunes. That really makes a big difference. And look out for the next episode of The Otters of M. Chitka very soon. Thank you for listening. I'm going to go play Fallout 4. 
Until next time.